my great honor to introduce Mr. Michael Crow. Well, hello, everybody. You'll learn a lot more about Craig as we go through this uh, discussion. We've got about 40 minutes here and then about 20 minutes for questions and interaction with uh, you all. And so uh, Craig Barrett is our guest this evening, and he is an individual who, by his own uh, decisions in his life, has been a singularly important actor in the evolution of one of the most profound technologies in human history, one that has allowed us to... uh, in a simple term, to uh, count uh, uh, at an infinite, or approaching an infinite speed, to count those things that we can put in place uh, that can help us to make better decisions, view better images, move information around, innumerable things. And so Craig, uh, a native Californian uh, who uh, grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, ended up at uh, Stanford University as an undergraduate in uh, 1957 and then left there with a PhD, uh, and then joined the Stanford faculty for a number of years, about 10 years or so, and then from there moved into the uh, Intel Corporation, uh, ultimately becoming, uh, after uh, uh, many levels of service and types of interaction, ultimately the CEO and chairman of that corporation, which is one of America's most significant and successful corporations to date. where I want to start, Craig, is a little bit, uh, you're uh, using the parlance of generations. I'm a baby boomer, built, uh, born right in the middle of the baby boom. Uh, you're a depression baby, is what uh, people of your generation are uh, referred to. I'm not that old. <laughs> I didn't come up with this. I'm so, a pre-war baby, Okay. Okay, he's a pre-war depression not yet over baby. <laughs> and so, and so uh, people born more recently, like the new kids that we have coming in at uh, ASU, are uh, what some people are now beginning to refer to as millennial net. They were born and uh, matured right as the millennium changed, and they have never known anything other than the internet and advanced computational devices as learning tools, as entertainment tools, and as mechanisms. And so here you are going to Stanford in 1957, largely before the realization of advanced computing had been realized, but sort of on the the cusp of the emergence of of, uh, the modern transistor and microelectronics and then integrated circuits and all the other things that emerged. Let's start with, and I know you have some grandchildren that are millennial nets, Is it possible that the millennial nets are, because I actually think this is possible, (laughs) they will be fundamentally different in their capacity as human beings than those that lived before the era when you had basically advanced supercomputers attached to to your bodies that would allow you to communicate on a moment's notice with any other individual or any other source of information on the planet in real time? Is there, is there some chance that we've reached a point where these technologies that have been aggregated are actually going to affect the outcome of this present generation in ways we haven't seen before? Well, I suspect you're limiting yourself in your observation because you're, you're basically assuming that technology won't move forward as fast as it has moved in the last decade or two. And I see no indication that technology is slowing down at all. So I suspect in 20 years you could rephrase this question about the, you know, the post-millennial uh, teenagers and, right. and what they experience. Yeah, right. but, but it's been pretty much of an evolutionary change. I mean, the, the PC came out in the you know, late 70s, early 80s. You started to get cell phones in the, really in the 90s, uh, the Internet in the 90s. And so we've seen kind of gradual implementation of this uh, social fabric that these uh, youngsters have taken advantage of. Are you, yeah, on, so are, you, are, you, are you on Facebook, by the way? <laughs> I, I'll tell you. Uh, I am uh, just a Facebook. yes or no, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> so the answer, the answer is yes, but I don't spend as much time on it as other people. Oh. And I, I learned my, my uh, 26-year-old daughter, who's a PhD student at UCLA, 
She's on Facebook, and I hear from her friends what's happening. Did you see the picture of blah, blah, blah? I said, no. Well, why not? Well, because I don't look at that stuff. But, uh, and so, yeah. But so I think your point is really one that's uh, very well taken, which is this notion of, of uh, the rate of technological advance is likely to uh, remain rapid, if not accelerate, going forward. And so what we're experiencing now is but the uh, early vestiges of social, cultural, political, economic, military, uh, geopolitical, all levels of changes as a function of these technologies being yeah. deployed. Now, in, in your case, I went back, uh, this book, by the way, is not the history of your life, although you're in here. <laughs> this book is everything that uh, my research group in my office could come up with about uh, you know, where we're headed and the end of uh, physics-based microelectronics. You know, the, we have been forecasting the yeah. end of physics-based microelectronics yes. for a couple decades. I didn't say they were right. <laughs> well, I just want to set the stage for yes. the next question that's coming. Yeah. That's so the next question is to actually go back in time. So, so your old boss in 1965, Gordon Moore, uh, came out with this uh, uh, article that he wrote uh, that became famous and began affecting the way people think and the whole concept of Moore's Law, which is this uh, cramming more and more components into uh, integrated circuits and then ultimately expanding computational capability and lowering cost on a, what has proven to be uh, uh, a fantastic uh, set of achievements. He predicted this. And so 1965, he starts thinking this. Here we are uh, uh, almost 50 years uh, later. Where are we with uh, your old friend Gordon Moore's Moore's Law? Well, it's interesting to go back when Gordon wrote that article in Electronics Magazine, 65, he's he basically said, uh, this is an interesting observation. You do this semi-log plot, and it doubles every 18 months or so. Uh, he also said in that article, this can't possibly continue for another 10 years because nothing doubles you know, every 18 months for 10 years. And so we got to 75, and that's about a little after I joined Intel. And they got to 85, and it's still going, and then 95, and 05, and now we're at 2013. And it's really not showing much signs of slowing down, uh, even though, as we commented earlier, in the 90s, we were forecasted to run out of headroom to continue to do this. So what do you mean by headroom? Oh, when you got down to one micron dimensions, then optical lithography dies because the wavelength you're using to image patterns on, on the surface of silicon was at the order of a micron wavelength, and therefore you can't focus much below the wavelength. You guys raise your hands when we're like getting, we're going to get into. Uh, <laughs> we're going to go from micron to, to nanometers. Five, five nanometers, to scale whatever. And 22 nanometers and so forth. How many need help with that kind of stuff? <laughs> so, what's a micron, Professor? <laughs> 10 to the minus four centimeters. 10 to the minus four centimeters. A ten thousandth of a centimeter. Ten thousandth of a centimeter. And in relevance to a human hair? Well, a 25 microns makes basically a thousandth of an inch, and a human hair is yeah, four thousandths of an inch, so. You guys tracking that? <laughs> so it's not very far, so it's. Uh, and so, and so where, you know, one of the things that was interesting to me was where did all of this get started? To what extent do you think an inventor as far back as Samuel Morris, who in the 1830s conceptualized a binary code, electric pulse uh, communication system called uh, Morse code over the telegraph. So he conceptualized the telegraph where you're sending zeros and ones, you know, dots and dashes over some distance where then you're able to send a message and reconstruct that message. Is that a starting point for anything, that kind of logic or not? Well, that's, that's kind of a starting point because it, it's kind of the zero and one issue. And then when you start to forget base 10 and compute on the basis of zero and ones, you can do all sorts of exciting things with that. And, uh, you know, this is what kind of led to the very early computers, uh, the vacuum tube-based computers, right. which uh, is where the bug concept came, if you didn't right. know. I mean, it was yeah. moths flying into vacuum tubes and shorting right. them out, and that's where software bug... That's the phrase, software bugs come originally, from. It was really not a software bug, it was a real live moth. And <laughs> But organic. But a, a, <laughs> a, a 1957 undergraduate from Stanford would know that. A 2007 undergraduate from ASU probably wouldn't know that story. Yeah, well, education's kind of gone downhill. Yes, I guess, right. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
by the way, so, so, so the, the point on Morse is, uh, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, uh, you know, uh, freshman Stanford in 57, and I took computer science 106 or whatever it was, and that was an absolute mainframe computer class with a deck of cards that you had to punch and go hand in the glass window. Who remembers decks of cards going <laughs> to the windows? And all I remember about those decks of cards is that I couldn't find that damn comma that, I, that, that wasn't there. You came so my, back 20... My, jo my job wouldn't run. You came back 24 hours later, you got the error code, and then you yes. went through the deck of cards yes. again. card by card by card by card. Yeah, that wasn't said, exactly an inviting no. scenario to go into computer science. No, I said only fools would go into this yeah, stuff. So. Well. Okay. And so... And so <laughs> <laughs> and so I did say that to myself. And so uh, 1957, Stanford, you rapidly went through your undergraduate program, got your PhD there. Stanford had been altered dramatically by a range of people, but Frank Turman, who had been a provost there. Fred. Fred. And so Professor Turman. Professor Turman. Professor Turman had a huge impact on Stanford. What is it? What's different about Stanford? Or what was different when you were there? Well, what Terman did, basically, was to change a engineering school, his dean of engineering, to make it into a research university from a teaching university. And basically what he did was to make the change of hiring faculty as half-time teachers and half-time researchers, where they had to get half of their salary from research contracts. Right. And this was really the first foray into that, which catapulted Stanford, I think, into a, a top-tier engineering school uh, because they were able to hire really great engineering talent, also good teachers, but then really build up the research component of the university. So you're sitting in high school in Northern California, and you're obviously uh, an outstanding student, or you wouldn't be going to Stanford. <coughs> what, were you interested, what were you interested in then? And I have a moth in my throat, so... <laughs> Well, it, it, a bug, it, as he says. As it, as it turns out, when I was graduating from high school, I was interested in becoming a forest ranger. Forest okay. ranger? Yeah, sir. When so, I took the personality test in high school, they said I should be a forest ranger. <laughs> well, we have something in common. Yes. Uh, <laughs> but I, so I applied to Oregon State, has a great forestry department, and I, my high school math teacher suggested I apply to Stanford. I, you know, Stanford was prohibitively expensive at the time. Not that it isn't now. <laughs> but you got, you got to put this in perspective. In 1957, the tuition at Stanford was $250 a quarter. $750 a year. But it was well beyond my middle class family uh, capability. So I applied and uh, I was sitting in this math class and I talked to my friend next door, or next to me, and I said, hey, Tom, it says, what is your prospective major? And I didn't, I wanted to be a forest ranger, but then Stanford didn't have a forestry department, so I had to put something else down that line. And I said, what are you going to major they in? They have a tree, though. And it was, well, at that time, we had an Indian. <laughs> um, but he said he's going to major in metallurgical engineering. And I thought, that was cool. How do you spell it? Does it have <laughs> one L or two L? It is two L. So I put down metallurgical engineering. I was probably the only freshman applicant in 10 years who was going to Stanford that said they want to major in metallurgical engineering, and they just so happened that the Kennecott Copper Company had a scholarship, had a scholarship for a metallurgical <laughs> engineer. So I got a tuition free ride to so, go to so, Stanford. So you, you end up, uh, because of your math skills and a, and a forward-thinking uh, counselor or teacher, uh, going to Stanford, getting a full ride from a mining company and a copper uh, development company. Yeah to focus in on a historic technology as opposed to a new technology. What's the linkage between what you learned at Stanford as an undergraduate and a graduate student sort of starting out thinking about materials and metallurgy and so forth and where you ended up? How does, how does one make the connection? I mean, in my job at ASU, we often talk to parents, most of whom are somewhere between obsessed and insane, uh, uh, about the choice of their child's major. I said, it makes no difference. They'll just, it's pretty much random as uh, Dr. Barrett just uh, indicated to us, and so, and so, uh, <coughs> so, 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 so why am what, I what so a, random? What does a metallurgy student, a metallurgy student do in the year of the Chevy Bel Air? And I, you know, okay, you got to get the, the scenario right here, though, Michael. Uh, I went to Stanford, major in metallurgical engineering. Yeah. Sputnik went up. October 4th, 1957, your yeah. freshman, freshman first year. quarter, yes. So immediately, the government 
decides we need to... No, they like wet their pants. I mean, it was... Uh... Let's go for the space race. What was one of the key elements of the space race? Materials of all sort. Yes. So every metallurgical engineering department in the United States became a material science department oh. overnight. So, and then you expanded the study from metals to materials. The materials include things like ceramics, mm-hmm. semiconductors, Silicon, polymeric yeah. materials, mm-hmm. and metals. Yes. So... By the time I graduated, uh, when I wanted to get my bachelor's degree, in fact, they handed me my diploma and it said, uh, Craig R. Barrett, Bachelor of Science in Material Science, parentheses, Metallurgical Engineering, because they felt <laughs> guilty having changed the name of the department. <laughs> but I, when I graduated and then went to graduate school in Material Science, uh, Material Science was really the study of materials. Kind micros- of integrated, a whole bunch of things. Yeah, but the, really the microscopic characteristics of materials, impurities, phase structure, yeah. defect structure, impact of all that on electrical, magnetic, mechanical, optical properties. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are semiconductors? You know, semiconductors are materials with impurities in them, right. interfaces, layers. Right. So it's material science. you want to get them to do certain things, move electrons this way or that yeah, way, this it's, speed, so that speed. It's all material science. Right. And in fact, actually majoring in material <clears throat> science was a great advantage to looking at the semiconductor industry because the semiconductor industry was created by a bunch of double E's, electrical yeah. engineers, who, in my candid opinion, didn't know squat about materials. <laughs> so I... Mechanical went, engineers out there? Electrical engineers, yeah, electrical go. engineers. Electricals. But anyway, so when I... After I taught at Intel for a while, consulted right. in the semiconductor industry, right. uh, the skills and, and the background I had as a material scientist just translated directly into semiconductor manufacturing, which is really, it's, it's microscopic materials manufacturing to get the properties out that you want. Right. To be able to do these massively uh, important calculations across all these dimensions. So well, to create, you know, to get a billion or two billion transistors in the space of your fingernail. Right. That's so uh, one of the articles I looked at recently uh, by uh, Bill Nordhaus, uh, who thinks about these kinds of things, went back over two centuries and he tried to compare the human manual calculation capability. How fast can the smartest person calculate with their mind and a piece of paper and a pencil? And his calculation is, it's a, a broad estimate, but nonetheless you'll get the point, that it's somewhere between a 2 and 75 trillion times improvement over manual computing. Is that all? And that's, that, this is 2007. So this, yeah, yeah. And so this is looking back over the last... But let, let's call it 100 trillion for the lack of a better term. 100 trillion times improvement. Now, you know, we've been improving the productivity of hybrid corn since 1900, 3 or 4% per year. Uh, this guy, Nick Bockert, I looked this up uh, yesterday, he thinks that there's a 65% improvement in the speed of calculation year over year. Well, 65% year over year. You know, a trillion is only a teraflop, right? Yes. 10 to 12. So right. you're already, the supercomputers are already kind of up in the 50 to 100 pentaflop range. So you're, you're kind of a factor of 100 to 1,000 low. Low. I hate, I hate to tell you this. Yeah, yeah no, low. but so that's not me. Remember, <laughs> it's not me. It's Nordhaus. And well, so, and so the... So the, so the and so, so one point, of us left academia, one of us is still there. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> but so, so the, 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 the I've never point, seen you speechless before, but that's okay. <laughs> so, so the point, though, is not so much the, uh, how many trillions of, of times faster it is or what the percentage of increase is. There's probably never been anything, certainly nothing that I could think of, that has had this level of, of productivity change or this level of enhancement in something critical to human decision-making and human, human life. And so now we have this trillions of times improvement, trillions, and we're just getting started, as you suggested, yeah. with, with at least 50, 60, 100% productivity enhancement in these devices in terms of their speed of calculation year over year over year. Where does that take us? What, is, there, is there a limit to that or, or not? If you go back to uh, Gordon Moore's law, uh, which talked about this doubling every 18, 24 months or so, uh, you can probably forecast off the existing technology that everybody says is almost dead another 10 or 15 years. So, and that's another 
five or seven doublings of what you've got today, and you can take two to the seventh, right? Yeah, yeah I so, can still calculate that. All right, so that's kind of what you can just see on the horizon. Yeah. Now, the fact that we have proclaimed physical electronics or the transistor dead yeah. every year for the last 20 years, right. and the fact that one of the things ASU and Stanford and other good universities do is create really bright youngsters to come out and bright ideas. And so we keep going around the corner on these physical limitations. You know, and let me just give you one example. What we're all talking about so far is planar electronics, okay? Which is all the transistors are in a physical plane. Yes. Two dimensions. Yes. Uh, all you have to do is start to think about, well, what about the third dimension? Not, like you, not the, you guys funded at Berkeley, you see yeah, Berkeley in the 90s. Yeah, not, not, not a third dimension just on the you know, three-dimensional yeah. transistor, but layers of transistors, one right. on top of the other. Right. And once you start to think that way, you say, Unlimited. okay, well, I don't even have, really have to shrink things down that much to continue Moore's Law, which is getting double the transistor count, double the memory density, double the compute power. I can do it by building the third dimension. So that's one way to look at it. The other way you look at it is, I, where I thought you were going to go with this conversation, well, what comes after the CMOS transistor? Yeah. You know, and, uh, CMOS I, thought you, I thought you would reject that too easily, so we're going to end up there in a roundabout way. Well, you know, the, the, there are all, all sorts of, of great research going on. And there, by the way, there's been great research going on for the last 15 or 20 years in this space yeah. as to what comes next. And, you know, whether it's, you know, nanotubes were hot for a while right. and graphene is hot now. If you don't understand these, these are just thin layers of, of kind of a semiconductor device. The thin layer allows you to do some special things with it and make smaller transistors. The one in your purse switches. or the one if you're a guy probably somewhere near your hip. Who knows what it's doing to your hip, but there it is. But, you know, the, the, using those substrates is just an extension of the standard transistor structure. Right. And, and then you can go to, well, let's replace the electronic switch with a, a, a spintronics or a magnetic electron spin switch, and, and we can make those things smaller, maybe, and because mm -hmm. and, a small, smaller number of electrons uh, carry the signal there or the switch characteristics then with so, so what's the, so what, but what's, for those, those, what's the driver? So what's the demand at a place like Intel when people are saying, you know, we need, when, when you guys are sitting around and you're saying, well, We've got to... I'm uh, retired, by the way. Remember yeah, but, that. Okay. but when, when, when you were there, <laughs> yeah. you're sitting around and you're, and you're saying, well, we've got to make these things uh, faster. We've got to make them cheaper. We've got to make them better. Uh, what are the drivers when you're, when you're sitting around? Is it, is it, we can do this, we need to figure out how to do this? What, is it more push? Is it more pull? Which direction does it... Is it both? It's a degree of both. And, and effectively, being the house of Moore... Right. So to speak. Um, we use Moore's Law as the roadmap. And that was the strategic plan for the company, which was no matter what anybody said, academic, financial analyst, media, no matter what anybody said, we would drive Moore's Law until we ran into a brick wall. And that's exactly what we have done, the company has done. And it's why it, I think it's why it ended up at least a couple of years ahead of everybody else in the industry because we kept saying Moore's Law is sacred. Moore's Law is the heart of the company. It's the strategy of the company. It's providing more electronic capability at lower cost on a continuing basis. That's our competitive advantage. So every flock of new college graduates that come in the company, you know, the, the standard speech you give them is, hey, guys, we've been following Moore's Law for 30 years. It better not end on your tenure at the company. <laughs> Here's $7 billion of R&D money. Make it happen. Yeah. And, and that's, that's kind of what the company is doing today. And, and by the way, interestingly, it, it's a very simple strategy. And, you know, it, it just follows off Gordon Moore's observation. Uh, the financial community can't understand it. The competition hates it because they have to spend a lot of money to stay up. And as long as Intel keeps performing, it's yeah. just in a perfect competitive position. 
So, so let's go back to 1957 again, just for a second. So, wow. so no, you want to be a forest ranger. Your teacher says maybe, maybe you should go to Stanford. Math will get you in. You get there. Sputnik launches. Uh, Americans uh, become uh, very much focused on advancing science and technology and engineering and math, the STEM professions. I know you're really interested in STEM outcomes today. Why is it seemingly harder to get enough kids interested in these disciplines today? And I don't, it may not have been that easy prior to Sputnik even then in 1957-58, but uh, uh, why is it seemingly harder today than when you I were think coming in, it, My perception, Michael, is that in 1957, when I graduated from high school, and if you were looking at a way to be successful, to be in the kind of the upper middle class, yeah. middle class, upper middle class. Uh, engineering was the obvious choice. And, and now there's know, more choices. Well, there are a lot more choices. And unfortunately, most of the choices are a lot easier than engineering yeah. from a major standpoint. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I never fault the decision I made uh, for a couple of reasons. One, it, was, it seemed to work out okay. Uh, <laughs> and, but secondly, I think that the, the key thing about an engineering education is, is not whether you're a mechanical engineer or electrical engineer or material scientist, whatever it is. key thing is engineers are trained to solve problems. And it doesn't make any difference what the problem is. You, you're trained in problem-solving methodology and then kind of the, a, a technical or scientific format to solve problems. That carries over into any aspect of life, as far as I'm concerned. I've never taken a business class in my life. You know, I grew up as an engineer, and I got to be CEO of a major company and, and never had any problems with the financials or any of that stuff because I knew math and I knew problem solving and I could communicate with anybody. But I always, as well, carry an observation that what is the number one major in terms of the percentage of Fortune 500 CEOs, what is the major, the highest percentage of them have that are current CEOs? It's engineering. Now, they may have been a bachelor's of engineering and got an MBA, but they've got engineering in their background. So I, I, I think engineering is a phenomenal background for young kids, yeah. regardless of what they do with it. Yeah. They could be a lawyer, they can be an... MBA, they can be whatever they want, yeah. but it's a problem-solving capability that was great. And the thing that I, I, when I talk about education today that I get most concerned about is the fact that kids are getting turned off with math in K-12. They're not going to your university, uh, or let me say to the university population in yeah. general, because your engineering population has been growing a bit. But in terms of engineering majors, U.S. citizens, they were on the yeah. downtrend yeah, right. because it's tough. Right. It's hard. It's right. rigorous. Right. Uh, when I was growing up, you know, it wasn't an issue of whether it was rigorous. You know, we wanted a good job, and a good job was engineering. So you, you did the math, you did the physics, you did the chemistry, you did the labs. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I had history majors and poli-sci majors all around me who didn't have labs and homework and all that stuff, but there was a carrot out there, and the carrot was, that's the way to get in the middle class. Yeah. So a few years ago, you might remember this, you and I were in the editorial boardroom of the Wall Street Journal. Remember that? Yes. That day? And so we were talking to a couple of the uh, editorial writers for the Wall Street Journal, and we were talking about uh, the need for investment in science and technology and the importance of American success in scientific and technological activity, and, and uh, these guys took the view in that particular discussion uh, about the fact that they didn't care where the research was done, so long as somebody did it and the market drove it. They didn't care particularly whether or not America was more or less successful. That was up to Americans, and you said at the time you were the leader of Intel, uh, and Intel is a multinational corporation with with uh, research facilities all over the world, with fabrication facilities all over the world, with markets all over the world. It's a global corporation op operating with a global footprint with a lot of investments outside the United States in the last few decades. Uh, uh, and you commented about the fact that um, 
you had grandchildren that uh, live in the United States and are growing up in the United States, and you, need, you, you, like me, we were arguing the same point. We'd like the United States to be successful. Now, when the United States, or for the United States to be successful, we need the homegrown corporations grown up out of nothing like Intel, you know, grown up out of the, the minds and the wits of uh, hardworking people on the track and on the path that you talk about. Going forward, when you think about the United States in this global marketplace with lots of innovating competitors and lots of market forces out there and all the dynamics that we're, that we're facing, what kind of conceptual design should we be thinking of, if anything in particular, about universities and corporations and the government and how to move forward and what should we be doing as the, you know, the future of microelectronics and integrated circuits and advanced, advanced computational devices are moving forward, are those things that we're going to be buying from others that are developing them with money that will be increasingly difficult to earn because the facilities are located somewhere else? Or what, what, what's your thoughts about this whole global world? Well, backtrack a little bit. As I recall, what I said in that uh, editorial board session was that a company like Intel, multinational, and it, when I say multinational company, uh, Intel today does 75% of its business outside the United States, 25% in. It has the ability to have great Russian engineers, Chinese engineers, Malaysian engineers, German engineers, Israeli engineers, <laughs> Irish engineers. You can hire the best engineering talent wherever it resides. And my, my position was uh, the, the company could be very successful in the future as a corporation without hiring another U.S. citizen. But as a grandparent of U.S. kids, I was torn with this issue of I want opportunity for my grandkids, my kids and my grandkids. And so there's a degree of patriotism in this whole decision about where you put your resources. If you translate that to what the United States needs to do, in my opinion, uh, very simply, there are only three levers that any country has to pull to increase its competitiveness. Uh, education is the first and it's the most important lever. You either, if your standard of living is going to be proportional to the education level, the ability of the workforce to add value to what they do. So if you don't have a good education system, game's over. And, and to adapt to whatever they encounter, right? They have to be able to adapt, yeah. problem solve, yes. whatever. The second lever that a country has to pull is its investment in the future, and that's in R&D. And so that's why research universities like ASU and Stanford, Berkeley are, are so important, because the new ideas that come out of those research universities are what create the Intels and the Microsofts, although Microsoft kind of funny or yeah. yeah but forget Facebook and Microsoft. That I mean, sort of more <laughs> came out of the yeah. Seattle Country Day School. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> And then the, the third thing is uh, you have government policies that let smart people to get together with smart ideas and do something. You have a tax policy, an IP policy, you have venture capital, you have uh, the ease of starting businesses, this entrepreneurial spirit. There's really nothing else in the 21st century you can do. And, and so when you look at the United States today and you say, okay, uh, how are we doing from an education standpoint? Well, you guys know how we're doing from a K-12 standpoint. I just testified in front of the Arizona Senate today on an education bill, and I, I just quickly rattled off the statistics. You know, math and science, the United States compared to the OECD countries, we're kind of in the lower 30%. Math and science, Arizona is in the lower 10 to 20% of the states. You do the math, that tells you where Arizona K 12 education is compared to our industrial counterparts. And if we don't do a good job in K-12, you don't get good, good American students, students in your university. You'll get a few, but you're not going to get right. as many as we need. So education is just terribly important. We're not doing very well there. Uh, R&D spending in the physical sciences, we're kind of, you know, way behind inflation. Well, that's for those the last geniuses working on that sequestration back there. Well, the, I, I wrote an op-ed piece with one of your counterparts, uh, the MIT president, on how dumb sequestration was in terms of R&D. And, and then if you look at the environment, uh, we've got good 
rule of law, we've got intellectual property, we've got venture capitalists. We do pretty well there, but then you get to our tax policy, which is nuts. Our immigration policy, which is worse than nuts. Uh, legal immigration policy. Uh, so, you know, we, we kind of break even on the right environment, but we lose, or we're losing on the R&D one because we're not making more investments, and we're really losing on the education one. So why do, you think, why do you think people have a hard time grasping this part of the equation for national success? Um, philosophically, when people think about it, they don't have a tough time grasping it. To do something about it, you have to buck the bureaucratic system that's there. You have to go against the, the entrenched bureaucracy in the K-12 through system. You have to go to Washington, D.C. And, and convince people that sequestration is crazy. You have to convince them, uh, you know, let's double the NSF budget. And people will look at you, and when you go to Washington, say, we can't double any budget. And you say, well, how much is the National Science Foundation budget, which is the premier funder of physical science in the United States? How big is it? It's $7 billion a year. How much do we spend on agricultural subsidies each year? More than that. How much do we spend on ethanol subsidies each year? Washington doesn't like to spend money on research because it doesn't give you a bridge with your name on it. It's not asphalt ready. It takes 10 years to right. take the idea into the marketplace. It's well beyond an election cycle. So we argue, right. let's spend more money in research, and Washington looks at you and says, won't help me get elected. Right. So you've already talked about, um, and I think you're very, uh, obviously very uh, bullish on uh, the continued technology development opportunities that lie ahead, be it from carbon nanotubes or, or advanced 3D systems and the whole uh, Intel uh, lab to fab strategy and so forth. So is this whole thing that you've really, your life has seen the entire, you know, you enter Stanford as a, not even knowing what it was, metallurgy student, and you leave as a material scientist then affecting the outcome seriously of a, one of the one of humanity's most significant materials development enterprises that we have ever developed. And so you've seen the entire cycle. Most people still think that materials are the key to so many of the things that we're doing down the road. Where do you see all of this going? Well, I, I think that there's some incredible excitement left in the system. First of all, Moore's Law is not dead. It's going to go on. And so we get this continued increase in compute power, memory density, uh, computational speed, communication bandwidth, all this good stuff. So whatever you've seen, folks, it's, you're going to get more and more and more of it for the next 10 or 20 years. No abatement. Uh, and that gives you the opportunity to see all sorts of fun things. I mean, you know what the Internet is today. Somebody Take run a, that calculation of 65% improvement per year for 20 years. <laughs> and uh, Well, we, you, we start to talk about <laughs> exascale computing, 10 to the 18th of computations per second. 10 to the 18th is a rather large number. That's how many ants there are in the, United, in the world. <laughs> so you, you could count every ant in the world every second uh, from a computational standpoint. But you do that. But I think the really exciting thing here is when you start to marry this capability. And, and so far, we just talked about kind of information and computation yeah, right. and, and all this stuff, you know, weather forecasting right. and these complex calculations you can do and simulating, you know, molecular structures and all this stuff. But when you start to marry it with other sciences, like biology, mm -hmm. that's when it really gets to be exciting. Let, let's, let's get beyond just the information side. You know, let's, you got a hearing problem, let's give you an implant in your ear. You got a seeing problem. Many people think I do. But... Yeah, well, <laughs> my wife gives me that all the time, too. <laughs> uh, but you have a sight problem, you know, let's have an implant, you know, replace the cornea. Get that message back to the brain. Because we could engineer bio-nano systems well, that would we, have the computational we, power. And, and this is what I really like about it, because think of the material science stuff that goes in with this, along with the electronics yeah. that goes into this. This is what we can look up for in the future. And I think the possibilities are just unlimited, what can happen here. I mean, you, you obviously have been pursuing this at ASU, because you guys are... You know, kind of combining your disciplines over there right. and, and breaking down the walls between them. And that's the next frontier, I think, in all of this. Right. 
This is maybe an unfair question, but I'll ask it anyway. Um, Why am I surprised? Yes. <laughs> so how do we, how do we as you know, uh, most of us in this room, maybe not all, but most of us in this room are somehow affiliated with institutions or projects or programs or something that, that are focused on creating these waves of innovation and opportunity, and we are also creating social and cultural disruption along the way. That is, as we can get comp computers to replace whatever this or that or to perform this function or that function, uh, there are these. What, what are your thoughts, if any, about whether or not we should be putting time, energy, money, and assets into thinking about technological applications, and I think you hinted at this when you talked about other kinds of applications, that are, that are focused on some of our uh, social and cultural complexities? I, I just think there's, there's huge opportunity in those areas. Uh, the challenge you have, and it's really the challenge you have, is to create the right environment to get smart people together with smart ideas and then take advantage of those things. Um, I, I frankly am a fan of uh, you know, let's let the technology move ahead. And, and uh, I'm not going to get into stem cell stuff here yeah. per se, but uh, we're talking about kind of physical science right. technology here. Machines. Machines yes. and whatever. But let's let the technology move ahead and then let's let the bright young and bright middle-aged and bright old folks. <laughs> I'm looking at the audience. <laughs> uh, figure out what to use the technology for and, and just let it happen. I mean, the internet kind of so happened. Empowerment of options through technology. Empowerment of options, I think, is much more powerful than, than trying to let's predetermine what we want to do and what we want you to work on and what's, what yeah. solutions we want to work on. Right. Let's, you know, we had a, had a saying at Intel, you know, only the paranoid survive, that was one saying, but Andy Grove... How long a, did you survive? <laughs> I, you know, I, I told my gentleman, Paul Odellini, who's just retired now, followed me. I said, Paul, you know, a measure of success uh, being a CEO in a corporation in the United States today is you get to retire on your terms <laughs> and not on somebody else's terms. Yeah. Um, but what, what the hell of a question went out? You, you, were, <laughs> you were sort of waxing a little bit before we turned to questions from the audience. You were waxing on... Uh, uh, oh, yeah. It's, yeah. I mean... The, the beauty of, of capitalism, Schumpeter, is creative yes. destruction. Yes, Joseph Schumpeter, if you want to read it, and, really and, and the beauty of technology is creative destruction. New technology can bring you wonderful new things if you just give it the opportunity. Uh, but if you try to channel it, if you try to characterize it too much, if you don't let chaos reign and then reign in chaos that's where i was going that's the intel saying which is you have to spell reign correctly here yeah, yeah. Uh, here but uh, let letting chaos reign is let all your bright ideas get out there and then figure which one makes sense and then pursue that but don't predetermine the ideas yeah. Let them get out there and then figure out which ones to follow. And did you, did you guys bring in some English majors to help you with that rain versus rain thing? <laughs> Remember, spell check. Yeah. <laughs> Developed by engineers, right? So why don't we go to uh, questions? I'm an alum of one of Intel's great educational programs, the Intel Education Service Corps. Um, and it's a great example of technology and education partnering, putting in computer labs in African schools. Just wondering if you have a favorite partnership that you've seen with creative use of technology in education. My favorite examples with the uh, use of technology and is using computers in schools. And it doesn't sound exciting per se, uh, because I've always said that the best technology in any classroom is a good teacher, it's not a computer, but using computers to amplify the learning experience as a tool to make the learning experience more exciting. And many years ago, we put out a, uh, basically a classmate PC, it's a small PC targeted at young kids. And 
in the United States it's kind of passe, but when you take this technology to villages in Nigeria or Egypt or India or rural China and you see the impact that it has on young people's educational experience, uh, you, you just really get sold on the value of technology. Now, the value of the technology depends on the quality of the teacher that you have in the classroom. The navigator. That's you helpful. get a good teacher and give them that tool, it's just an outstanding experience. So vacuum uh, tubes were sort of uh, what were replaced by transistors. I was curious what you thought uh, would uh, replace transistors in the future. That is the $64 trillion question. <laughs> um, and it gets to be more important the closer you get to the end of Moore's Law with the classic transistor. And, and there are really two things that you have to have. You have to have an a electronic switch. Tube was a switch. Transistor is a switch. You need an electronic switch that is more economical and has more headroom than the transistor. And right now there is nothing, in my opinion, there that has that headroom. Just to make sure everybody understands what the switching is for. So the switching... Well, the switching is the ones and zeros, and that's the basis the of all memory and all computing. So, uh, but people have been looking at this replacement of the transistor, what's the next electronic switch, and that's why you get all the excitement about spintronics and... Photonics photonics and quantum dots and carbon nanotubes and all this stuff because people say, well, the transistor's supposed to die and maybe this can start to take its place. Uh, the transistor took the vacuum tube place because the vacuum tube had really reached the limit and had no headroom at all. And so it was easy for the transistor to kind of come in and take over because you had a flat environment to operate in. Moore's Law is continuing to go, so that means that any new technology doesn't have a flat target. It has this doubling every 18 months or so target. And it's really tough to catch up with the doubling and make something that's cost-effective because this, the transistor is, is ridiculously cost-expensive. Uh, any of you read the Sunday edition of the New York Times? Uh, if you count up the number of letters... A, B, C, Ds, or numbers in the Sunday edition of the New York Times, and then you divide it by the purchase price of the New York Times, Those, each letter is way more expensive than a transistor. Way more expensive than a transistor. And these transistors, I mean, these things are, are engineered microscopically in, in $5 billion plants, so they're incredibly like expensive. Like the one being built here in Chandler. Incredibly expensive to process these wafers, but you do it in such volume at such tiny scale that the cost for each one of those transistors is almost minuscule. And that's the target any new switch has to go after. So these switches are counting these electrons as they're going by, and then we convert them into photons to put them in the pipes to move that information once the calculation has been done. So the interface between the two is perhaps a place that plays... It's not bad for a non-engineer, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I am a supply chain management and sustainability student in Barrett, the Honors College at ASU. Um, is that connected to you guys? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. And uh, my question relates to that. I'm, I'm passionate about technology and have been my whole life as a millennial. And, millennial um, net. Millennial <laughs> net, right? And uh, my question for you is, is, especially as a material science guy, uh, you know, look at a company like Apple which is a great company that makes a lot of great products for people, but they essentially design disposable products that are designed to be recycled with Moore's Law as new technology advances. Um, and obviously our sources of all of these materials that go into all these technologies we're developing are rapidly depleting. Where do you see the future of technology uh, from a sustainable perspective and how do we you know, recognize our, our issue with that and the environment? Well, first of all, there's a lot you could do in terms of uh, recycling within your manufacturing worlds and. Uh, uh, companies like Intel and others do a lot of that in terms of uh, recycling the chemicals, gases, materials, and such. The other thing you always try to, to engineer in is that as you follow Moore's Law, you not only want to double the output, but you want to decrease the input. 
So you get the, the, the double benefit of, of more capability coming out for less use of the resource. Not zero use of the resource, but less use of the resource. Uh, for, fortunately, when, when you made the comment that uh, those resources are rapidly running out, there's a heck of a lot of silicon in the world. Uh, and you'd probably worry more about some of the rare earths uh, uh, involved hafnium and things like this where there's a more limited supply but but you know the the, the guts of, of integrated circuits are things like aluminum <laughs> copper a lot of copper in the state of Arizona uh, silicon oxygen uh, things of that sort so th they're not really scarce resources it's all the things that they get applied to that consume so many new materials yeah. The, the, the other things that you then have to worry about are, are the recycling, and uh, the Europeans are probably ahead of the United States in that respect in terms of forced recycling on the, the manufacturers and sellers of the products, limiting the use of hazardous materials and that thing that go in. Uh, I suspect you'll see more and more of that type of, of legislation going forward. Uh, but as far as the chip are concerned, it's, it's, you know, go for a walk on the beach, you know, that's all the silicon Intel needs for <laughs> the next decade. So interestingly, he, he mentioned Apple. So uh, it's always amazed me a little bit that the Apple has nothing without the chips. They're not a chip manufacturer. They're an assembler of designed configurations in high levels of elegance. Why, do they, why does Apple trade for between 10 and 30 times what Intel trades for? I mean, it's interesting because it's, it's not so much an Intel-specific e uh, question. No, no. It's a, it's it's a question a, about, uh, you know, who really put the value on the table that enables the devices to actually work. There's a general rule in the high-tech world that reads as follows, which is market shares are won and lost during periods of transition. And transition can be a technology transition or a capability transition or a marketing transition. But you need a transition of some sort to win and lose market shares to go against entrenched players. Let's look at a part of Apple, iPhone, okay? Uh, who was the premier phone manufacturer in the world 20 years ago? Probably Motorola. Years? Motorola. Then who was the premier phone manufacturer when we went from analog to digital? Nokia. Nokia. Then when we made the transition of digital to smartphone, Apple. So in the space of 20 years, you've seen almost a, you know, 100% market share shift in a base commodity associated with technology transitions. Apple, uh, under Steve Jobs, did a very good job in a couple of areas of technology transitions. The iPod, which, you know, there were, there were two dozen MP3 players out when the iPod came out, but the transition was a good user interface and he coupled iTunes mm -hmm. with the sale of the iPod. The use, took right? over that market. Mm -hmm. iPhone, smartphone, I can remember talking to the Nokia senior executives when, motor, or when Apple was just starting and yes. their comment was, we're selling 50 million phones a quarter. Yeah. Apple won't sell a million phones this year. We're not worried about Apple. Right. But they were like up above the Arctic Circle in Finland or something. Like that. No, no, no. Remember, only the paranoid survive. That's right. That's right. So over here we have Next paranoid question. people asking questions. You mentioned earlier how uh, there's a couple elements to success, and the first one, of course, is education. As you know, my children uh, follow that closely and are likely on an engineering path. The second one, you talked about the environment. Um, and I've been reading lately about what, what I'll call the magic of innovation in Silicon Valley. You know, venture capitalists, uh, lots of tech jobs, et cetera. I'd be interested in both of you to comment on, is there an element of that kind of magic that can be brought to Arizona? Because as I think about my kids' future, I have to be honest, you know, while ASU is a fabulous college and maybe they'll go to their undergrad, there's an element of, let's call it the Stanford aura, because of what's in Silicon Valley, that if they're going into high-tech jobs, especially double E's or software engineering, that today, if someone said, where should my kid go, I'd point them to Silicon Valley and not the Phoenix area. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about that, what I'll call magic? Um, can that be transplanted or developed in an area like Phoenix? And what do you think is required to do that? I, I think the, the real magic in Silicon Valley is a combination of things, which is you had two great universities in the area. Berkeley and Stanford. 
venture capital was invented by Arthur Rock, who was the founder of not only Intel, but Apple. Uh, and California was a great place to live. Two of those three things remain. <laughs> um, is Mr. Rock still alive? Art is still alive. And Stanford is still there. Last time I looked. Uh, um, and they have, have a football team too, Michael. They do, I noticed. <laughs> we'll be, we'll be playing. We'll... You know, and, and, and I, I didn't even pick on Sparky, and you picked on the tree already yes, right. tonight. <laughs> Sparky's in transition. <laughs> um, the rest of the world is trying to replicate either Silicon Valley or Route 128. The Harvard-MIT scenario is, is kind of similar to Silicon Valley. Uh, I think you're seeing imp improvements in Arizona in that respect. And one of the, one of the improvements is uh, this gentleman and his predecessor at ASU have really pushed to pump up the university as a research university. And Michael's uh, goal to double the research over the next few years is, I think, key to making this happen. You're starting to see more venture capital in the valley. A lot more. And and incubators and commercializers and things like this, his sky song exercise. I'm starting to see positive signs, but this is not something that happens overnight. This takes a period of time to accomplish. It took Silicon Valley 30 or 40 years to get its position of preeminence in this space. Yeah. And anybody who wants to copy that, you need a period of transition. That's when market shares are won and lost. And the only transitions occurring, California is kind of getting to be a less popular place to be and do stuff. It gives the opportunity to Phoenix and other up-and-coming research universities. Yeah, and, and, and we're taking it. So to, to your question, so uh, this morning I was driving to an economic development event in Scottsdale where I had a fantastic opportunity to outline, you know, uh, spin out companies from ASU in energy technologies, in materials technologies, in devices and, and all kinds of things, medical devices. They're all over the place. They're all over the valley. There's tremendous amounts of venture capital, but I, I get there and I can't help but listen to the stories on the news of this local radio station I'm listening to, which is a very popular radio station. So this was a story, not an ad. Did you know that McDonald's has a new chicken wrap with a sauce that's really spicy? Now, now <laughs> this, this was not an ad. This was a news story. A second news story, this was fantastic. The price of gas has changed. <laughs> this was a news story. It was the third story I listened to before I just like almost smashed the radio out of my car was that Walmart had news scanners. And so one of the issues that we have is that, is that the, the, the local culture is not yet caught up to speed with all the things that are actually going on. I, I would have every confidence in telling you that for your, your child or your children or your families that there will be fa are and will be fantastic opportunities in the kinds of things that Craig was talking about right here. Today's transistors are, are manufactured primarily based on copper. For con they use copper for connectivity. I was wondering, could you talk, shed some light on all that technology that we're looking at, you know, towards uh, manufacturing better transistors that would be able to take away the limitations that we have with copper, which has to do with heat. You know, when I, when I started in this industry, uh, we had a single layer of metal interconnect. And if I look at a current uh, state-of-the-art device, there are 10 or 11 or 12 metal layers on it. And, and clearly, one of the challenges is as those metal lines get smaller, their resistance goes up, and then you start to have kind of incubation times for electrons to flow from A to B. I think one of the most exciting aspects of the technology going forward is going to be the integration of photonics, silicon photonics, onto the integrated circuit. So you start to communicate across the device, or the, the integrated circuit, with light beams rather than 
metal wires. So you'll still have metal wires, no matter what the, the switch is that someone asked me about before, whether it's a, uh, a Spintronic switch or, whatever, or a CMOS transistor, you still need all these massive metal interconnects to wire all these switches together. Uh, but when you start to get bigger chips and you start to have communication bottlenecks on the chip, photonics is one way around that. And actually some of the great work at Intel and Mario Panaccio's group is in fact silicon lasers, silicon transducers, the whole issue of silicon photonics, which you can now integrate onto the standard silicon infrastructure. So that's where I, I think the big, big advances are going to come over the next five years. Given the uh, history of the CEOs at Intel, um, uh, including yourself, um, all uh, promoted w from within, um, uh, with the interesting wrinkle in the case of uh, Paul, being him first being non-engineer trained uh, CEO. Um, I don't know if you're involved in the selection committee or anything like that. But no. If. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, in this post-PC world, so to speak, um, what kind of profile, from your standpoint, would you like to see as the next guy assuming the helm um, uh, at Intel? Uh, my personal bias, and this is personal because I'm retired from Intel and I'm not associated with the CEO search in any way, would be to have an internal replacement. I think they've got strong internal talent. I would like to see the internal continuity uh, of the, you know, every company thinks they have a unique culture, but Intel has a strong culture. I'd like to see that carried over uh, as opposed to uh, bringing an outsider into the company at this time. And, you know, th there are always some good examples of outsiders coming into companies, uh, but usually companies bring in outsiders when they're struggling. And uh, if you looked at, uh, well, Hewlett Packard maybe. A classic example of where things are going really well over there. <laughs> yeah, we're on the third CEO now, and 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 kind of struggling and so forth. Uh, when you when your company has, I think, a a strong strategy, a strong capability, a strong roadmap, uh, I think continuity plays a big role in there. And uh, the company was pretty successful going from Bob Noyce to Gordon Moore to Andy Grove to whoever was next and then to Paul Adelini. Uh, I think those transitions were pretty seamless in the company. You know, it's a, grew to be a, a kind of a $55 billion a year company today, pretty profitable. And as uh, I think Michael uh, very nicely said, I mean, it's been ranked as one of the more important companies in the world. And I would really hate to see it perturbed by some outsider who comes in and decides silicon is dead and let's go do software or something of that sort. <laughs> so I'm, by the way, Intel hires more software engineers than any other type of engineers. There's a heck of a lot of software in every chip that goes out. But um, Where does Intel hire more people from than anywhere else? Um, Arizona. Arizona, <laughs> Arizona State University. That is true. Arizona State University has been the largest supplier of college graduates to Intel for many years. And it has room to improve. Yes. <laughs> Ken Mossman, uh, Arizona State University. Craig, you mentioned that um, computer power is now approaching about 10 to the 18th uh, bits per second. If that's the case, that exceeds the human brain power. If you assume that the human brain has about 10 to the 11th neurons and there's about a thousand synaptic connections per neuron and synaptic firings that are around 10 to 100 per second. So that's about 10 to the 15th to 10 to the 16th. My question is if that's right and computers uh, have uh, exceeded human brain power are we looking at uh, computers demonstrating uh, emergent properties not unlike the brain? You want to play chess or Jeopardy? <laughs> <laughs> no, it, the, uh, if you look at, at some of the uh, 
grand challenges that the National Academies have put out. One is, in fact, really understanding the human brain and then figuring out how to channel that sort of compute power in to replicate the human brain. But clearly, any issue of, of, of recall or uh, chess where there's a finite number of moves, even though the finite number of moves is very large, very large uh, computers are way better at that today than human beings are. So we've already got to that stage, and now the issue is just basically to make the computer software flexible enough to use that compute power to be able to do what we can do in this room, which is to scan around and look for any unique happening and then process that and take that back and then give a response to that unique happening. I mean, the human brain is, is really pretty magnificent when you look at just scan around this room and see how much information you take in in a second, and then you process that, and then you can recognize people and do something with that. We've got to get computers to mimic the brain in that respect. We're not there yet. Uh, by the way, when I started out many years ago at Intel, and we just had the microprocessor going, we used to have this plot of precisely what the gentleman mentioned, which is how long it took you to get to the human brain. When I started out, we were at the cockroach level <laughs> <laughs> and working our way up Moore's Law. And we've, we have gotten from a, just a, a compute power or, or computes per second capability to the brain. We don't have the, the software and the intuitive capability that the brain has and the flexibility that the brain has at this point in time. Thank you so much. With that, we will see you all at the reception. Good. Good one.